0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, we are in the middle of, well we hope we're in the middle, but we may be worse than that, of a terrible housing crisis. People simply can't find houses that they can afford to buy. It's causing uh, emigration again. It's deterring people who might want to come and work here for, say, the multinational companies from coming because they're not sure they can find a place that they can afford to live in. And of course, for people, the proverbial nurse and guard who marry on their salaries, what can they find? And a fascinating new book has just been published. Its title is Who Really Owns Ireland? And the author is Matt Cooper. Matt is one of our best business journalists, former editor of Sunday Tribune, He's now the presenter of The Last Word on Today FM, which is a successful program, drive-time program. No O'Toole describes this book as brilliantly researched and written with verb clarity and a narrative punch, the essential guide to the ground beneath our feet and the roofs above our heads. Matt, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your book. It's a fascinating topic and it is very illuminating. Let me begin by asking you, has the answer to the question you pose as the title changed since the collapse of our economy through property in 2008, 2009?
1: Very much. Um, it's really interesting. One thing that really fascinated me in doing the research for this book was finding out just how much it changed. I suppose I had a feeling I had sort of an understanding that things had changed, but I didn't realize just quite how much. Back in 2009, I wrote a book, Who Really Runs Ireland? Which was, I suppose, the story of how we got to the crash, all the various players who had created the circumstances which led to the crash. Now, obviously, it was an international crash. It wasn't just something that happened in Ireland. But we had a particularly perhaps enhanced version of that crash, which of course led to the rescue of the state by the Troika back in late 2010 and the humiliation that I think we had for Ireland at the time and a situation that needed to be sorted out. And over the last 12, 13 years or so, we've engaged in an enormous shift in the ownership of the assets of the country. And... Housing is one part with commercial property is another, all sorts of other things. The things I suppose that we maybe take for granted that are ours collectively, but they're actually not. They're owned by individuals, they're owned by corporations, they're owned by foreigners. Yes. And they're important to where we live, where we work, where we socialise, where we play. All the things that we take for granted tend to be in other people's hands. And that's what I've tried to detail in the book and the shift in the ownership and to try and assess how that actually matters to us.
0: Now, in the 1937 Constitution, which was overseen by de Valera and Archbishop McQuaid, I'm told, the, the rights, the property rights, were uh, very tightly sort of outlined. But what was clear was that the state had no role in this, and wh- what made that clear was, you know, the right to private property and the corporately owned property was embedded in that constitution. That's a significant fact, isn't it? Because in 1971, Bobby Malloy was the minister of Local government, Finn Fowler, and he set up a committee under the chairmanship of Judge John Kenney. And they produced in 1973 the Kenny Report, which urged us to have a referendum about property rights and the common good. Why do you think the government of 1937 was so keen to preserve property rights?
1: Catholic Church and godless communism. I think those are probably the key factors. And even if you go back the Proclamation of 1916 in looking for the right to self-determination. It didn't really follow what was going on across Europe at the time in looking for the right of the state to own rather than the rights of private individuals. And that possibly was down to the uh, God-fearing beliefs of some of the signatories to the Proclamation. And then when you get to 1937, and we tend to look at an awful lot of the social impact of the dominance of the Catholic Church on the thinking of the time, the position of women, uh, the rights of the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church would regard itself at the time as fighting collectivism and communism and being anti-religion, and that fed its way into the Constitution at the time. And then when we get to 1971, well, I hadn't realized, uh, actually, a friend of yours and mine, Stuart Kenny, they're from... Yes, Idaho, I know Stuart, he, he, he founded was,
0: Paddy Power.
1: Yeah, it was his dad was Judge Kenny. Really? Um, yeah. Yes. And I had a fascinating conversation with Stuart about all of this, um, and his father did come up on the commission. It was a majority report, there were dissenters on the report who wanted to put a a cap on the value of undeveloped land, land that could be developed or housing for the benefit of the people. And that hasn't been done. And in my 35 years working as a business journalist, I've lost count of the amount of times that that has come up, that the Kenny Report was never implemented, even though it was a majority agreement by those on it. And although it could have done a lot of social good, it wasn't implemented and part of that i think possibly comes down to a sort of a thing in the irish psyche as well is that there is this enormous desire to own your own little bit of property yes own your own house or to own your own apartment not to have somebody else own it for you and i think that's one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last 15 years as well which i tried to examine in the book is that there was almost as a reaction to the way that people overextended themselves with overly high mortgages at the time of the boom, that we won't let that happen again. We'll allow people to be renters rather than owners. That has a certain logic, but it creates its own problems as well. The certain logic in that people, if they can get a fair rent, can afford to live. Now, the problem is... Rents aren't fair at present. You mentioned early on in your introduction about how expensive it is to buy. It's even more expensive to rent. Yes. And then the big problem is, is that you rent until you die, whereas at least Irish people have traditionally wanted to have regarded rent as dead money. They wanted to buy because the belief was at a certain stage you'd have paid off your mortgage, and you won't have to worry in your retirement years about. How do you afford to pay for where you're living? Yes, And that's one of the great societal shifts that's actually happening in this country that we're not speaking enough about, is that for all of the people who are renting, because that became the quasi official state policy, what's going to happen to them when they get to a certain stage in life where they're not able to earn enough money to pay for their rent?
0: Yes, I mean, elsewhere in Europe, in France, for example, which I know very well, um, nearly everyone rents, or there's no problem with renting, In Germany, also, there's a a large market for rental property. And what did the Kenny? What difference would it have meant if the Kenny report had been recognised and the constitution would have taken place? The people would have voted for what, Matt? Do you think? And what good would such a vote? Because it's still invoked when we talk about property.
1: I think it would have fed into more affordable housing being available. No. Land isn't the only cost involved when it comes to the uh, production of housing, but it would have helped in particular as well in the planning of the provision of services and the likes of sewage provision, electricity, yeah. all the rest of it, all the things that cost a lot of money and add to the bills. I mean, among the things at present, Which adds to the cost enormously of any apartment block or any housing development is the cost of actually facilitating all of the services and getting switched on to the water mains, the electricity actually ends up being a big part of the cost to the buyer. So it would have it would have helped in that regard. But I suppose what we've got to know is the situation whereby we actually have a real crisis, as you say, because our population has expanded in the last decade and a half in a way that nobody anticipated. We're now up to 5.3 million people in the country. We're heading for, what is it, 7 million people by 2050. We're heading for numbers that are beyond anything that we've had since famine times. We have not planned to build enough houses and apartments. We need now, by the most recent estimate, and this goes beyond even what I have in the book, which the latest estimate from Roland Lines is we need 70,000 units per annum. This is the housing economist Roland Lines. We're producing around 30,000 when we have a need for 70. That creates obvious problems in relation to the price of what's available to buy and sell. It causes all sorts of problems in relation to rent as a deal comes back to a supply and demand issue. We need an enormous amount of additional construction and building. And the problem is, who's actually going to do that? Well, Fianna Fáil
0: and Fine Gael, this coalition in power, they're sort of talking the talk, Matt, and they say they're going to build more houses than have been built for decades and are in that process now. A couple of things I think our listeners would like to know, I'd certainly like to know, are they really doing that? And B, would we have the skill sets In the country, plumbers, bricklayers and all of that, because an awful lot of young people now are coming out of school with degrees. They're not much worth much, many of these degrees, I think, but they're not coming out with basic skills that you need to actually build houses in the sort of numbers we need to build them. Are you, you, when you, you are obviously better informed than the rest of us when you hear the, the housing minister talk up what he is going to do, and indeed when you hear the Sinn Féin promise what they're going to do when they get into office, are either of those things realistic?
1: Okay, there's a few things there. You raise an excellent point, one of a hobby horse of mine, about the skill shortage that we have in the country, which some people would blame on the Irish Mammy, wanting every son and daughter to have a third-level degree now at this stage. in a professional qualification, rather than an awful lot of children and young adults coming out of secondary school who are better suited to doing something like an apprenticeship, which unfortunately we have far too few people actually doing at present. It's almost like we've developed a degree of snobbishness towards the idea of trades, and everyone has to go into profession, and many people are much, much better suited and can have much better livelihoods yes. out of trades if they were to go to that. So that is a major factor in one of the problems we will in accelerating our housing development, and we could get back to the bizarre position where we had during the Celtic Tiger era, where we were having to import all these people, which meant we were building houses for the people who were coming in to build the houses. Yes. That's one major factor. But the other major problem is a finance one. And we're not alone in this in Ireland. This is an international phenomenon. This is a problem all over the Western-speaking world, where there are there is a failure to build new housing at the speed that is required. And finance is a major part of it. So the government has done reasonably well and the government is doing interesting things at present in that and this again a slight diversion but it is relevant we have had over the last decade or so a lot of foreign institutional investors who came in to build the new apartment blocks in particular and sometimes the housing estates and they're decried as the vultures but There was a deliberate reason why they were invited in. There were a couple of deliberate reasons. One was that they were the only ones who had the money to build anything because our banks weren't going to finance the developers and the developers had no money themselves. So the developers effectively had to work for these international funds who provided the finance to build the apartments. But there was also a belief that we needed them, and this goes back to your point about France and Germany and where people are happy to rent. They tend to rent off... Um, institutions who yes. use apartment blocks and who are tightly regulated as to what they can charge in rents and the services they supply and allowing people to live to their final years in these particular blocks. We decided we wanted to professionalise our landlord market, rather than having the Garda or the doctor or the shopkeeper who owned a couple of properties here, a couple of properties there, some of them would have kept the properties well for their tenants, others wouldn't have. We wanted to so-called professionalise the sector. Yeah. And that's what happened. And that's where an awful lot of the building in recent years has been done. Now, however, with interest rates rising, not just a, a problem for Uh, the ordinary consumer. But uh, an issue for those who are developing, what returns can they make in relation to building these apartment blocks around Dublin or in other parts of the country? They've effectively decided there's not enough money. They've largely gone, just like they're going for commercial property. And that means the state is having to fill the gap. And here's another one of the ironies. In all those years that we were complaining about the so-called vulture funds getting in the way and stopping young people from buying their own homes in Ireland. Well, actually, the state was doing more of that because the state wasn't building its own homes. What it was doing, it was buying ready-made homes from the developers. And the state was actually the biggest inhibitor to those young people who wanted to buy Houses, these houses instead were bought by the state for social and affordable housing, and that has accelerated in recent times. Now, the question going into the future, Eamon, is going to be how do we get from 30,000 to 70,000? I'm not sure the state can afford to be building 70,000 homes a year and renting them then to people on reasonable terms. Where's all the money for that going to come from as much as to where are the actual builders going to come from? And I'm not sure any political party can actually answer that question.
0: Well, let me ask you another question that isn't strictly to do with the book, the consequence or the consequences of being unable to build or offer to our citizens who are doing vital jobs, nurses and guards and others who work in the community without which we wouldn't have a country. If we can't house those people and our own people who might want to stay but have forced to see no future, and particularly in terms of housing. There's couples in their 30s who want to start a family but have nowhere to live. Is that going to lead or is it leading to the most appalling social consequences for a generation that will
1: think we've no chance here? Potentially, yes. Unfortunately, that is the situation. This is where the potential for social unrest and political upheaval lies, in that it's a fundamental that people want somewhere to live. And then people also get jealous of others who get the opportunity to live where they want, while they can't afford to do so. Right. So that is going to be a major issue. And then if you look at how it's impacting, for example, on urban living, And when I say that, I mean Dublin and places like Cork as well, particularly Dublin. And given that Dublin, the population of Dublin has exploded and it very much has become, rightly or wrongly, the epicentre of Ireland. But if you have people who can afford to live in Dublin, but then they find that their children can't get educated because the schools can't get the teachers because they just can't afford to live in Dublin. So what do you do in that situation if when they need to go to hospital and they discover that they're in the emergency department for 24 hours because there aren't enough nurses and doctors in the hospital because those nurses and doctors can't afford anywhere in Dublin to live? Right. this This problem is not new. This is something that... I would have been banging on about from about 2016 onwards. In fact, going back to 2014 when I made a TV documentary for TV3 as it was then, now Virgin Media, suggesting that a housing crisis was emerging. And we were sort of laughed at at the time because there were still the remnants of the ghost estates around yes. and we'd built too much. But actually the economy was starting to recover and jobs were being created. And then that created a need for where people would live. And at present, we have more people working in this country than we've ever had in the history of the state. And that means you have more people who need places to live. So we haven't been able to keep keep pace with that. And that potentially, as well as creating social unrest for a generation and unfairness towards them, could choke off the economic recovery that we've had because it has struck me that I couldn't see why the government hasn't for years noticed that as it was bringing in more and more jobs over the last five to 10 years, why it didn't invest in keeping pace with housing and indeed other infrastructure as well, which is also dealt with in the book.
0: Selling a little or a lot? Now, Matt, the question, who really owns Ireland? Is it property developers, bankers, pension funds from outside the state? And can they, whoever they are, be regulated? Is regulation here a real problem?
1: It's a problem everywhere. It's a question of pragmatism in relation to all this. I mean, the reality is international capital, which is mobile, dominates in nearly all of the countries into which it goes. And And that's true true here as well, is it? It's true here as well. Now, you can look at doing things like countries like Australia and New Zealand would be interesting in that they have tried to put restrictions on the amount of ownership of housing, by a foreign capital. But they've done it very, very late in the day. I mean, Australia, one of the major political issues there, for example, is how much of that country's assets has been brought up by China. You know, not just housing, but mining resources, whatever. And actually, that's why I go beyond housing in the book, Who Really Owns Ireland, into looking at things like our resources, the things that we actually need. And coming to the conclusion that, well, realistically, because so much money has to be invested in our future, and things like, for example, wind energy, the state isn't going to be able to do it. So we actually have to bring international capital in, but we have to do so in a regulated manner to make sure that while it earns a fair return for whatever investment it makes, that we get the benefit from it. So, for example, we have the potential to generate wind energy out out of our oceans and the Irish Sea eight times as much electricity as we would actually need in this country. Right. It's that potential. It is enormous. What the state has to do is the state has to put the facilities in place in our ports to be able to facilitate this production and put the grid in place and get paid by the various uh, wind farms for the use of that and we get the benefit of the electricity. But the trade-off is that they have to be allowed to make profits to justify the capital investment they make. But the, one of the unfortunate things is, is that there has been a lack of imagination and drive on the part of the state to actually do that, something that could be more valuable to us than an oil find ever would have been. Yes. But we actually have to find a way to do it in conjunction and association with international capital. And that is a major, major challenge, as it is in many areas.
0: Now, let me ask you about a couple of things, Matt, that a lot of people, I think, reflect on. One is, older people say, releasing equity, quote-unquote, in their homes, which is basically remortgaging your home, I think it is, you, you're the businessman, business journalist, author, so that you could help your, your children out. The other thing that's fascinating and troubling in many ways is pension plans that are based on property. Are these things dangerous, however tempting they might be?
1: There's a couple of ways of looking at that. I mean, I think we have largely got away from that idea of releasing equity to give yourself money for your retirement. That was a big Celtic tiger thing. That said, there is an argument that one of the things we should be encouraging in the future is trading down. People, when we get into a certain age, selling their house, and moving somewhere smaller so that the bigger house becomes available to a family who needs it. And I quoted the term of Bannon in the book. Yes. He's a TV star architect, because it's something I've discussed with him previously. That in what they do in countries like Sweden, for example, is that they would build an apartment block with full of one bedroom, up to six bedroom apartments. Okay. Yes. But you get an apartment depending on the size of your family. So if you had, like I have five children, five children all still living at home with me. But if we were in Sweden, if say we'd been lucky enough to get a six bedroom apartment, as the children would start leaving, we would be required to move to a smaller apartment. Right. We'd end up back in the two bed or the one bed at the stage where all the children had left. Right. Which is an interesting way. And the problem here is, as Dermot pointed out to me, even where his mother lived, she was in a housing state with a big patch of green grass out the front where all the kids used to play when he was growing up. Now all of the children have grown up and they've left. So there's all these four bedroom houses. There might be one or two people living in them. And there's no incentive for these older people. I mean, I I can understand it's for home. They want to live at home. They want to stay at home and die in their home. And that's very understandable. But culturally, if there was a way for them to move somewhere, that might be worse. And allow that four-bedroom house to be purchased by a family who actually needs it, rather than waiting for these houses only to become available when the occupants die.
0: Let me ask you about the, uh, finally, Matt, really, about the Irish psyche and how our past uh, the colonial experience we had with british landlords and uh, the famine and the rise of michael davitt and the land league the land of ireland for the irish people was his slogan is that so deeply embedded in us that would that explain to some extent our desire to actually own rather than rent
1: okay give me let me give you two Possibly different answers to that question. One, for example, is that something that I focus on in the book is when you talk about the past. A lot of the sort of the big colonial houses of the past, which are now hotels, and would have become Irish-owned in the Celtic Tiger era, and then the developers redevelop them as luxury hotels. They go bust they're now nearly all in foreign ownership. And do the people of these areas in Ireland, and I'm thinking of places in South Kerry, West Kerry, Rick, whatever, do they care that these are now in foreign ownership? I don't think they do, because they want the local jobs that are provided by the new owners who tend to be all foreign and the rest of it. So there's a degree of pragmatism. It doesn't really matter to them, whether it's a big Irish developer or a foreign investor who owns what provides right. employment. That's one angle on it. But on the other side, I think this is very important as well and could be very important politically as we go into the future and particularly in a general election campaign where everyone will be promising housing. It's a question, are you going to promise housing that will be in the control of the state to which you are beholden to the state, or a landlord, a foreign landlord, or is it one that you can own for yourself? And I think an awful lot of Irish people retain that ambition to own something for themselves. And I think a lot of it is rooted in the psyche of how they've been, they receive folk memory and what they learn in the schools about what was taken from us land taken from us under British rule. But instead of wanting to collectively own it once we achieved our independence, we seem to have gone, and this goes back to the discussion we had earlier, about having individual ownership and having individual rights to it. And there is something to be said at times for wanting people to make better for themselves and to create for themselves and take responsibility for themselves. Yes, But the reality also is, is not everybody can do that for themselves. And that society requires people to actually be looked after by the collective as well.
0: Okay, the book is called Who Really Owns Ireland? Uh, Matt Cooper is one of our outstanding journalists, business journalists, as well as being the presenter of The Last Word on Today FM. And we're very grateful uh, to Matt. The book is published by Gill Books and has been endorsed by some mighty men, including Vinton O'Toole and now uh, The Stand. We're grateful to Matt for joining us, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.